Welcome to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. We speak with Queen's Counsel, trial lawyers and judges from around the world about how they excel in the courtroom. Please subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and visit us for additional resources at theadvocacypodcast.com. I'm your host, Bibi Badejo. And in this episode, I'm joined by Justin Kahn, a highly experienced trial attorney based in South Carolina. He specialises in catastrophic personal injury matters in various kinds of complex litigation. Justin discusses how to use visual tools to prepare your case and to communicate complex ideas in simple, impactful ways. He guides us through the best apps and technology we can use to bring this to life, while explaining how neuroscience and magic have combined to influence his approach to effective persuasion. Hello, Justin. Good morning or afternoon, depending on your point of view. Oh, it's good afternoon for me. What is it for you? It's morning. It's 9.20 a.m. And how are you? Doing very well. Looking forward to this. Thank you for asking me. Well, I'm really excited to speak to you about advocacy. But before we start with that, can you just tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Sure. My name is Justin Kahn. I'm an attorney who practices law in South Carolina, the United States. And from time to time, I have cases in other parts of the country. I'm married, have three children, love to perform magic, like neuroscience and other things that are of interest to me. I graduated law school in 1992. In the United States, we have a board certification process. So I'm triple board certified in uh, trial advocacy, pretrial advocacy, and medical malpractice. And I'm also on the board of some various organizations that are involved with trial advocacy. I'm also an adjunct professor at the Charleston School of Law here and enjoy teaching students as well as lawyers when I speak throughout the country on various topics about how to present better, how to use the rules better, and how to be a better trial advocate. How's that for an introduction? It's an incredibly impressive introduction. Obviously, you didn't start with all of that experience and all of those skills. How would you describe yourself as a trial lawyer in the beginning? When I started off, I was focused on trying to emulate other trial lawyers that I thought were very good. And what I later learned was that trying to be someone else is not a way to be effective. So I don't know if that helps answer the question or not. Well, it does definitely in terms of what you were were looking at as a young advocate. But I think what I would also like to know is if you were looking back now and describing yourself as a, a young trial lawyer, how would you describe yourself? Do you think you were quite confident? Did you understand how things were going? Or was it more like me? <laughs> Felt like I was walking in the dark a bit. Well, one of the things that I tell law students as sort of a joke on the first day is, what's the difference between a law student and a lawyer? You know, they all say they don't know. And I say, it's the confidence you have in talking about something you know nothing about. And so it seems to me that as an attorney, you have to get used to standing up on your feet and acting and being confident in what you're talking about, even if you yourself may, in some part of your mind, doubt your ability. I think you always have to think to yourself, I really do have this. There's nobody better prepared 
are able to handle this other than me and to build up a sense of confidence in yourself about your abilities. And that's what I think takes the practice and skill in doing. That takes time. And I think the only way to do it is to get up on your feet and start practicing. And we'll talk more about that throughout this interview. But that to me is the big difference between what I'll call my younger self and now is the uncomfortableness with being unsure. Now I'm comfortable with the uncomfortableness, if that makes a kind of sense. It does make sense completely. You mentioned that your father was a trial lawyer and still is a trial lawyer. So how did he influence you, if at all? The first influence was because of him, I did not want to be a trial lawyer. I saw the incredible amount of time he would spend preparing for cases and taking matters to trial in an area of the law, basically suing doctors, which was almost like a guarantee to lose or to uh, swimming upstream. And so he would take on these cases against doctors in small communities and be successful. And he was also having to constantly fight an uphill battle to try to get the laws changed. Uh, So one of the things he taught me was you don't have to accept the law the way it is. Try to change it if you think it needs to be changed and think about how you can lay the foundations for not just the trial that you're involved in, but setting the stage for the appeal so that if and when you lose, you're ready to make the arguments to the appellate court because you've preserved the various kinds of issues. And so he had me thinking ahead as part of the process that when you are in the trial, that when you are speaking, you're not just talking to the judge and the jury, but to have in mind the court reporter that you're talking to is the third year, which is to the appellate court. And so the things you're saying, it's just as important to make sure that the appellate court hears that you've said the things as well as the trial judge and the jury. That's brilliant and very good advice for someone starting out, for sure. In addition to the advice that your father has given you, have there been other resources that you have consulted in order to improve your advocacy? One of the things that I think was in 1993, so I was within a year or so of having passed the bar, I came across a book called Cross-Examination, Science and Techniques uh, by couple of lawyers named Roger Dodd and Larry Posner. And what I found fascinating about this very thick book was that there was a technique to cross-examination. It was not simply about personality. That when I read through the book, I recognized or began to see that preparation is everything. And thinking two steps ahead is critical in planning not only cross-examination, but any case. And so what happened was that book and those ideas in that book became a core concept that allowed me to prepare not only for cross-examination, but for cases in general, because that book taught me to start thinking about goals and chapters in a case. What are your particular goals? How are you going to achieve this itty-bitty goal, which will lead to a bigger goal? And to think through going from general questions to specific ideas in order to convey information to the jury. And one of the things that they talked about in the book, that wasn't really articulated in terms of neuroscience, but the concepts weren't presented in a neuroscience kind of way, but really it lines up with neuroscience, is that the trier of fact, whether it's a judge or jury, communicating to them 
one fact at a time in bite-sized pieces helps to convince them of the conclusion without you ever saying, this is the conclusion you must have. And that to me is a huge step in advocacy. It's the ability, at least from my perspective, is to present facts and information to a decision maker in a way that they say to themselves, well, duh, that makes complete sense, this particular conclusion, without me as the advocate ever saying, you must conclude as follows. And I've gotten, since I've read that book in 1993, I've gotten to know Roger, and we've talked about different ideas, and I've seen him speak, but I still, before big cross-examinations, will go back to his book and look at specific chapters on impeachment by inconsistent statements or impeachment by omission as good examples of how to go through the process of cross-examining a particular witness using a particular document or the absence of information in the document. So that to me was a big first book in terms of my preparation and thinking about how to be a trial lawyer. Just going back to Roger Dodd's book with Larry Posner, you had mentioned um, neuroscience and the fact that they hadn't specifically mentioned neuroscience, but there are lots of parallels. And I, I know that you have a real interest, you've mentioned it already, in neuroscience. So how does that fit in with the way that you run trials and approach your cases? Sure. Well, if you think about what a lot of what neuroscience is about, uh, to me, is how the mind works. How does consciousness work? How does awareness work? How does decision-making work? And neuroscience in part investigates both the, not just the psychological sort of aspect of it, but the neurobiological part of that. And to me, reading about what typically is unknown or not thought about is a fascinating um, exercise for me. Uh, A lot of the decision-making that people make is done without conscious awareness. So how does that happen? I mean, we are lawyers. We are involved with trying to get other people to make a decision in our favor. Wouldn't we want to know how that decision-making process works in order to better understand it, appropriately use it, and to take advantage of what the process is so that we make sure that what we're doing lines up with how the process works. So for example, there are a couple of different aspects that I like to think of in terms of neuroscience and what it can offer a trial lawyer. And there's sort of three, at least two or three different areas that are of interest to me is how does learning work? How do you go about learning? How does anybody sit down and take in information and learn a new idea for the first time. What's involved with that process? And I'll talk about that in a moment. Another aspect of neuroscience that's fascinating to me is attention. How does attention work? Everybody thinks they get what attention is. They see something, see someone run across the street and they're paying attention to it. But what they don't get is how many other processes are taking place underneath what I'll call the spotlight of what you're consciously aware of that you as a presenter of information and ideas need to be aware of those processes in order to plug into them and make sure that they're working right. Another aspect of that is the sort of pre-attentive processing where there are certain biological ways in which vision and learning work that you ought to be aware of that take place without conscious 
thought. So for example, color grouping or shape and size distinctions, those you get immediately without having to think about them consciously. So going back to this sort of visual, I'm sorry, the learning concept, I'll call it a thought provoking concept and person that I've been reading a lot of is somebody named Richard Meyer. And he has talked about and written about multimedia learning. And I've tried to learn from that as a lawyer because he's written these books in the context of how people can teach information better. And to me, as a lawyer, that's what your job is. You are a teacher. You are trying to provide instruction, provide learning, and then end up with a result that is persuasion for the benefit of your client. And in his books, he's talked about the idea there's basically two, I'll call it channels of information input. One is visual and one is verbal. And so the question has always arisen and there've been studies to try to figure out what is the best way to learn? Do people learn best visually? Do people learn best verbally? And unsurprisingly, the answer is it's a combination of both. And what he's taught me through these books is that presenting visual information with basically a verbal voiceover is the best way to provide instruction. So I've sort of taken in that idea and thought about how can I apply that when I'm in the middle of a trial or even in a motion hearing or even in a brief or when I'm presenting information to lawyers. So I tend to, and we'll get into some specifics later on, I tend to use a graphic image on the screen and provide a verbal voiceover for it. And that tends to help people understand it because one, one of the points that I've gotten out of Richard Meyer's books is this idea called cognitive load. And if you as the instructor are increasing the cognitive load, that is you are overwhelming the person's ability to take in and process the information, then learning is going to go down and their stress levels are going to go up. So what can you do as the presenter of this information of these ideas to decrease the cognitive load to make it easier for the person to take in the information because when you decrease the cognitive load, learning goes up. And there's certain principles associated with decreasing cognitive load. Uh, there's many, many principles. I mean, there's a big thick book of them, but a couple of them that I think are applicable to lawyers in general is a concept called segmenting. If you start off talking about a very complex idea and present a very complex image to someone, it's too much information at once and they, that's too much cognitive load and they block it out and they can't get it versus segmenting. If you present the big picture first and then you start diving down into the narrow specifics, it's easier for the person to take in that information and process it. So I see it as my job as the lawyer to recognize these various principles about how attention works, how learning works, how this pre-attentive processing works, and then try to figure out how to mechanically use that in presenting information and ideas to whether it's a judge or jury to help them with the decision-making. That to me is part of the neuroscience aspect. And I've got several books that I'll provide the listeners with a list of some books to think about. That to me is how a lawyer can think about and use some neuroscience principles and apply that to the instruction sort of aspect of what a lawyer is doing. I think that also goes to the, the concept that simplifying your case as much as possible is the best way forward. 
And of course, neuroscience shows that with, you know, not overloading people cognitively and segmenting it so they take it in breaks. But how do you do that without oversimplifying what your case actually is? So how do you strike that balance? I don't know that there is a difference. I mean, to me, if you can make something that's so obvious to the audience that they wonder what's the question that's your goal and so really i I sort of joke that oftentimes it it takes a lot of work to make something simple and i go back to one of the things that i started off while i was in college i had a mac and i wanted to i was fascinated by and still am this is back in 1984 when mac first came out the graphical user interface Somebody thought through, and Steve Jobs recognized that getting rid of the, um, I'll call it the wall between the technology and the user interface is a big step towards making it easy and seamless. And so to me, that's part of what you as a lawyer have to do is to spend a lot of work and time and effort in order to make something simple and make it understandable such that when you are presenting it, it just seems obvious. So I, I don't know if I've answered your question, but that's, that's sort of how I look at it is you just talked about how do you figure out how simple to make it? I think you got to make it as simple as possible so that a person looking at, and I always try to think of, is there a particular image of the case or just a two or three images of the case that I want the judge or jury to think about? And if I can distill the case down to that, those one or two images, and that's what the case is about, then I've done my job because that's the point of view that the audience judge jury will have when they think about my case. And if they always think about it through the lens of the image I've presented it, then I've done my job and it makes it harder for the other side to present facts that contradict the image that that has already been built up in their mind. Does this also link in with the pre-attentive processing? Because if it's so simple that you as a lawyer haven't had to explain it, because the jury have seen the image, they guess it immediately. They haven't even had to think about it. They automatically guess it. Is that the sort of thing we're talking about when um, we talk about pre-attentive processing? To me, pre-attentive processing is something slightly different. That is a, I'll call it a neurobiological or something akin to that way in which the humans process certain visual information such that they're not even aware of that they're processing it and thinking about it. So if I present a series of round objects to you and one is smaller and the other three of the four, four round objects, one is smaller and the other three are the same size, your mind immediately picks up there's a size difference without even having to explain that. If one of them has a different shade than the others but they're all the same size, your mind immediately picks up on that difference or that distinction. So hue and color, size, orientation. So if you've got lines all facing, I'll call it left to right, and one of them is up and down, your mind immediately sees that distinction or that difference. So recognizing that this sort of pre-attentive processing, this way in which the mind immediately is seeing differences, how can you try to figure out ways to use that in presenting that information or idea to a judge or jury? And so I'll give you a quick example. Let's assume, although I, from what I understand, y'all may not have depositions in uh, it, where you are, but imagine presenting some kind of transcript 
to a judge or jury to decide something about, or a contract, let's make it a contract. Imagine there's a particular paragraph that has a, a meaning to you in your case that's critical to the case. And there's two or three words in it that really matter. There'd be multiple ways to present that document to the decision maker. Are you just gonna do the physical piece of paper and show that document? Are you gonna do a blow up of that page, a blow up of that paragraph, or using pre-attentive processing, retype that paragraph, take the words that are not as important and maybe make them a light gray and then have the words that matter be in dark black so that everything is now present, but the words that you want to stand out now immediately stand out with ease to the person who's not familiar with the matter. So you've used pre-attentive processing, you've made it easier, for, you've decreased the cognitive load, and now the judge, jury, or decision maker, you've made it easier for them to take in what you want them to take in to understand uh, your perspective or your point of view. The other thing that I want to ask you is about the visual images that you use, because you've mentioned, you know, multimedia learning, you can present an image and then talk over it. I understand that you don't actually have a go-to, so you don't always have a graph, for example, for every single case. It's case specific. How do you make those decisions about what sort of image is going to work in a particular case and what sort of images do you use? I'll start off with some background. Around 2005, there was a blog post, and I'll provide you with the link to it that's still available, by an author named Gar Reynolds, who did a post comparing the presentation styles of Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. And he was analyzing what Steve Jobs did differently and better than Bill Gates and why it was working. And that article and his books by Gar Reynolds called uh, Presentation Zen have been sort of a, a guidepost for me, a, northern, a north star as to how I need to always think about presenting information. I always think to myself something to the effect of how would Steve Jobs present this, not how would Bill Gates do it. And so some specific examples and distinctions that he made were as follows. Let's say when Bill Gates might present something, he may use a series of bullet points and there might be a bunch of colors and other things behind him and he might have sort of a closed pose. And so you as the audience member watching him present don't know, again, your attention is now being divided. Are you supposed to be paying attention to what Bill Gates is saying? Are you supposed to be reading the words on the screen? And by the time you, as you go back and forth between that, you as the listener have your attention go down because you don't know what to pay attention to. So your ability to pay attention and to take in the information and be persuaded goes down versus someone like Steve Jobs who may get up on stage with a very dark black screen and he himself sometimes wore black and he would just stand with an open pose and begin to explain something and would tell a story and would simplify it. And from time to time, when he wanted to expand on something or explain something, an image would appear on the screen, just a picture. And he would do a verbal voiceover basically to explain his story. And then the image would disappear and he would still be there talking. 
so the user, I'll call it the user, the uh, audience, would not have to fight or have to wrestle with what am I supposed to be paying attention to? And when you make it easier for the audience to take in the information and process it, you're on a better path to persuading. So to me, that, that article, that blog post, really set off light bulbs in my mind about there is a specific way you can learn to present better. It's not just about personality. There are methods you can use, and you as the presenter have to take the time to think through this process and how to go about setting it up. And along the same lines, uh, there's another author named Nancy Duarte who helped Vice President Al Gore come up with his award-winning sort of presentation on the environment. And she's got some uh, a cool, very good book called Slideology. And what those two books, Gar Reynolds' book, Presentations In, and Nancy Duarte's book, Slideology, taught me from many years ago is think visually. Think to yourself, what images do I want to convey to the audience? What the judge, jury, lawyers, whatever it is when you're presenting. And what words do I want to be using? What stories do I want to be telling? And to marry those, to mix those together in a way that's most persuasive. And always think about, know your audience. Always think to yourself, what does the audience know? You may have spent a year or more preparing for a case. You have to remember what it was like when you first got the case and you didn't know anything about it. If it's a complex product liability case, complex medical malpractice case, whatever kind of complexity there is, at some point, because you've been working on it for a while, it's now easy to you, you get it. And you have to remember your audience. What do they know? They don't know anything. And you have to think back to yourself, what was it like when I didn't know this? How can I present it in bite-sized pieces to bring them along, to get them where I am in my understanding? I was wondering about info graphics and things like that, things that you've created yourself instead of just a picture. Um, do you use those? Well, the answer is yes. One of the things I do is I collect, not quite the right word, but I like to gather together books on infographics and graphic design. Not that I plan on being an infographic designer or graphic designer to make a living, but in many ways I try to learn from the graphic designer tools, what are they doing? There are certain tools and rules used by graphic designers to, for layout design. How can I, as a lawyer, learn from those and incorporate that into my presentation of whether it's a slide or a blow up that I'm using into court? The same thing with infographics. How has the infographic designer taken some statistical information and translated that into an image? As far as I know, I've come up with this on my own, that I've thought about when you're designing a slide or a chart or a graph or whatever it might be for the judge, jury, or audience, is think to yourself, I'm going to make this as easy as pie. And that's sort of an expression we have in the United States is you know, something as easy as pie. So that's P-I-E. So I think to myself, each slide has to be pie, P-I-E. It has to have a point. What is the point of the slide? I, what is the image? So you got P for the point, I for the image. What is the image that I want to use for the slide? And E, what is the emphasis? Is there something I want to blow up out of the slide to emphasize? So I try to, as I'm designing each slide or piece of 
information or graphic is thinking to myself, what is the point of it? What is the image that needs to go with it? And what is the emphasis that I want to have so that the audience immediately gets something out of it? And I won't say ridiculously, but I, I, that's the first word that occurred to me is I mentioned earlier the idea of my sort of fascination with how the Macintosh desktop has been used since 1984, really 1983 with Elisa, but whatever. You know, how did these images, how did the user immediately understand what's going on with this computer? You know, you had folder icons, you had a document icon. And before that, there was no such thing. And so real computer nerds were just using a series of dashes and you know, I'll call them greater than signs to point to file directories. And somebody came up with the idea of why make the person work that hard? Use a, something that's already familiar to them, a folder structure. If we've got a folder structure, why don't we use a picture of a folder? If it's going to represent a document, then why not have a little document icon? And so Apple started developing the Apple Human Interface Guidelines so that developers can follow them to, there's actually a set of sort of, I'll call them rules for how you go about designing the interface that the user will experience with Apple products. And that's the Apple Human Interface Guidelines. So I try to watch or try to look through some of those guidelines to th think about how to do better designs. And I've actually watched a couple of talks that are done at the Worldwide Developer Conference by some of the designers at Apple who talk about the user experience. How do you make the user feel comfortable with the computer? And to me, it's the same thing that you're doing as a lawyer. How are you as the lawyer trying to make it as easy as possible for the decision maker to understand the idea that you are trying to communicate such that there's little to no work that they have to do. So they just immediately get it and think to themselves, well, yeah, duh, this is easy. You had mentioned magic at the very, very beginning yes. <laughs> of our interview. And I was just wondering, like, does that play? <laughs> and guys, you're, you can't see this. <laughs> I'll put it on the website. He's just done a magic trick and made something disappear right before my eyes. How has magic played a part and what have you learned from it? There's several concepts or ideas that magicians know that I think translate to being a trial lawyer. There was a famous magician named Di Vernon, who people used to call him the professor. And he used to talk about being natural, that when you are performing something, when you're doing a trick, you have to think to yourself, what would this look like if I wasn't doing a trick? So for example, if I was going to pick up a coin and make it disappear, what would that look like if I really had that magic skill and ability? How would I pick up the coin? And to practice doing the physical gesture to pick it up, put it in your hand, what would that look like without the move that might be involved with it? And so to focus on what are the steps to make something look as natural as possible. And to me, that's the same thing as a trial lawyer. You have to think about what are the steps, what are the mechanics for making this process look natural? If I'm going to be presenting information to a judge or jury in the middle of a trial, I have to have thought to myself ahead of time, where am I going to have everything laid out? How am I going to present this information? What's my body language going to be like? But to me, that concept of naturalness, think to yourself, what kind of magician do you want to be? And to me, that translates to being a lawyer. 
So what I think, and I think it's Darwin Ortiz, the idea was this, are you going to be the kind of magician who's like, wow, look at me, look what I can do. You can't do this or be sort of an angry magician. You know, what kind of magician are you going to be? Or are you going to be the kind of magician who's like, I don't know how this works. Let's just experience this together and see what happens and let's experience this together. And I think that translates to trial lawyer. You know, when you are acting the role of a trial lawyer, what kind of person are you going to be? Are you going to be a mean person to witnesses or are you going to be the know-it-all or are you going to be someone who, I won't say stupid, um, the simple person who's like, well, it just seems to me these facts are the way they are. And it just, I, I'm guessing that just because the way the facts are the way they are, it leads to this particular conclusion. Don't you think? You know, so you need to think to yourself as you are going to be presenting it, what's your personality going to be and why? And how do you make that natural? Another aspect of being a magician is you learn to always watch your angles. When you are doing an effect, you have to be aware of what the audience is seeing and what they are not seeing because what they are not seeing can be critical to the effect working appropriately. But you also have to be aware of that when the audience is not seeing something, that it has to seem natural that they are not seeing whatever it is, <laughs> um, as sort of deep as that, or, you know, layered as that may be. And so part of that concept is when you're learning to watch your angles, you always have to be thinking to yourself, what is the audience seeing? What are they seeing? You have to put yourself in the position of the audience such that when your body is in a certain position, what will they be seeing? And so that concept of watching your angles to me applies when you're in a courtroom or when you're presenting something to the judge or jury. How are you standing? What will the audience see? If you're standing behind a desk or a podium and you're pointing a blow up that's six feet away from you and the witness is 10 feet away from that, what's going to be happening? What is the audience, what is the jury going to be able to pay attention to when all that's taking place? Um, and so all those things to me sort of relate to what you learn, I'll call it naturally, or what you learn philosophically, philosophy wise from being a magician. And there's another uh, magician from Spain named Juan Tamariz who talks about in the use of the body, how the eyes can be used to direct attention so that when you look to a particular place, the audience tends to look there. When you look up, they tend to look at your face. So how can you as a magician use that sort of natural, I'll call it feedback loop, or a natural reaction of the audience to follow the, your, your eyes? When you speak a certain way, how can you make sure that the audience hears you to make sure the person in the farthest row back hears you? The same thing when you're talking to a jury. You need to make sure you need to speak as if you're talking to the person furthest away. How you stand. Are you going to have an open gesture? Are you hiding something or not? All those things relate to Juan Tamaris's sort of concept of using your body. And then I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Tommy Wonder, who I think is from Holland or was from Holland. And one of his books of wonder, he wrote the books of wonder. Uh, in the introduction, he talked about this idea, which I've never forgotten. And I think it directly applies not only to magicians and lawyers and blends back into neuroscience. And the idea is this, and this is what he said. 
that there's no such thing as misdirection. It's all the control of attention. I found that statement profound. What he's saying is you are not trying to mislead the audience. That is, you're not trying to misdirect them. You are trying at all points in time to direct the audience directly to what you want them to be seeing at that point in time. So they believe and perceive that that is the right place to be looking at that point in time. And to me, that blends directly back into being a trial lawyer, what Steve Jobs does, all the stuff with neuroscience and everything else. That points out to two things for me, which is, of course, as lawyers, it's about integrity. Not that a lot of people in the outside world necessarily agree with us, but it, it is about integrity and not misleading your tribunal, the jury or the judge. And secondly, having the control of attention also lends itself to you having control of the courtroom. And it's not necessarily that um, everyone else needs to know that, but once you know that, ah, oh, I've got, I couldn't, I'm controlling their attention, one, and I can be confident in what I'm, they're getting what I'm doing. So how does that work on a practical note when you're preparing something for court? Are there any like particular applications that you use and what sorts of things are you creating? At the very beginning, when I'm first sitting down with the client, when I'm first interviewing the client, I may be thinking to myself, what images am I going to want to try to use with the, in court? What ideas might I try to be presenting in court? What you know, physical objects may they have? Do they have a trophy? Do they have a certificate? Do they have a family photo? Do they have some other image or something, a scar, whatever it might be, that I'm going to want to be using to tell the story uh, at the end? And I'm thinking about that from the moment I'm sitting down with the client in the beginning. I genuinely say, as silly as it may sound, that judges are people too. And when I have a motion hearing, I may still bring blowups. I may still use slides because I think they got to get bored out of their mind hearing these same kinds of motions and arguments all the time. And I recently had, what's I say recently? It was about within the last year or so. I had a, um, I was in the middle of a trial and the judge made a comment. She referred to a blow up I had used about a year or more earlier. She had remembered a blow up I had used in a motion hearing in the middle of the trial about something. And I thought that's the power of choosing the right images and presenting them. And that judges are people too. They will remember these things. And I, uh, I can't overemphasize that. You may feel silly walking into a courtroom, maybe with an artist's case or in a big garbage bag that holds a 30 by 40, so it's basically a meter by whatever it might be, the dimensions are there, of a blow up. But think about the things that is conveying to the judge when you show up with one or two or three blow ups to help explain your position. You're telling the judge you're prepared. You're telling them you've thought about making it easy for them to get it. You're telling the other side, I'm ready to go to trial. I mean, if I'm bringing blowups to a motion hearing, guess what I'm going to do to you at trial? <laughs> I mean, so all these, all these things I think are important ideas to convey, which also translates into brief writing. So what I intentionally try to do is do a couple things. One is I actually create a table of contents, even though this is not an appellate brief. Typically, there's a table of contents when you're dealing with appellate briefs. Using Microsoft Word, I will create a table of contents 
for even trial memos or uh, just motion hearings, motion briefs. And I try to drop in particular images into the briefs. Now that may decrease the amount of words I get to use if I have a page limitation, but to me it increases the likelihood of my being able to persuade if I can put in a powerful infographic or image of the scene to let the judge know what's going on. Or if there's a, in the United States, we have these discovery disputes when you argue back and forth about whether or not the other side has provided you with adequate information. If I can literally cut and paste what they have provided into the brief, then the judge doesn't have to go hunt for it and look for the language elsewhere. So I try to take all those different kinds of things into account when I'm, I'll call it designing a memo or brief for the judge to make it as easy as possible for them to rule in my favor. The judge should just be thinking to himself, oh, this immediately stands out, this jumps out at me, I get what's going on without, sort of with the pre-attentive processing, he, he or she gets what's happening without me having to explain it. Lots and lots of brilliant ideas there. But of course, these ideas are on shaky ground if you don't have that foundation of preparation. So what I was wondering about really is what is your process for preparing your cases? Because obviously you need to know your facts inside out. I tend to use chronologies or timelines and then I can go into various schedules, but everyone's different. So I, what do you do? One of the first things I do is when I'm first sitting down with a client, again, I think to the end, a lot of the cases I try involve juries. So at some point, the judge is going to be reading to the jury what the law is that they are to apply to the facts. So I think to myself, what is the likely jury charge that will be used by the judge? And this is from the beginning when I'm first meeting with the client in the initial process. Because once you see and know what the judge is going to be saying at the end, that starts helping you sort of backfill or think to yourself, if the judge is going to be reading these words, where are the facts that I'm going to need to show in order to support those words? And if you think towards the end, in the beginning, it can help you with your process of finding the proofs to naturally have them flow at the trial such that when the judge is reading the jury charge, all these facts have been developed long ahead of time. And once you envision what it's going to be like at the end, that helps you with your process. So the first thing is think about this jury charge and what is the law so that you can then go about the process of finding facts. And one of the things I like to think about as a, um, as a lawyer is that you are the, in some ways a fact miner. You are picking up a fact, you're looking at it and you're thinking to yourself, all right, I've got this fact. Does it help my case? Does it hurt my case? Does it matter? And depending on what the answer is to that question, you can then do something with that fact and store it appropriately or discard it. So for example, if it's a fact that helps your case, you now need to think to yourself, what witness do I need in order to get this fact into evidence? What rule of evidence applies so that I can make sure it comes in? So those, that's sort of the part of the process is you start thinking to yourself, I've got this fact, how do I get it into evidence if it's going to be helpful. If it's a harmful fact, is there a rule of evidence that allows you to keep it out? Or are there some other facts that help minimize the impact of that fact? And again, using some neuropsychological principles in terms of 
what I'll call context and organization of facts such that when information is presented, certain words or facts, I'll call it, are presented to an audience member, they think of a person a certain way. So for example, if somebody says, this is a well-recognized um, neuroscience sort of test, an audience, or a, uh, audio, I'll call it an audience member, is provided with two different word descriptions for two different people. And the person is supposed to rate the person in terms of their likability or dislikability, I'll call it. And what the person doesn't recognize is that's hearing these words is that the words for both people are exactly the same, but they're presented in a different order. And so when you hear two or three favorable words and an Un, I'll call it an unfavorable word, and then a couple of favorable words, the person's more likely to rank that person higher in terms of likability and favorability than somebody else when you present them with the exact same words, but you start off with the bad word or bad fact. And so keeping all of that in mind and now applying it to law, if you have a bad fact, can you find other good facts to bury that bad fact in so you're still getting it out there but you're minimizing the impact of that uh, fact on the decision maker. That concept sort of dealing with bad facts, I think. And also the concept of um, primacy and recency as well, because it's, you remember, people tend to remember what you say first and what you say last as well. So that's a great example there. So the other thing I try to do is think about images as I'm sitting down with somebody, you know, not just the words that I'm going to be using, but again, I think I talked about the idea about what images are there certain facts here that lend themselves to presenting the case graphically? If it's a car wreck intersection case, are there particular images of, about the intersection? If it's a medical malpractice case, is there a certain diagram or flow of the decision-making that should be used by a physician that was not used? Uh, are there certain articles that stand out and might I use those? You know, if there's certain damages associated with it, is there a graph of damages that I can use. And the same thing in terms of these graphic choices, if I'm going to be cross-examining a witness, if, for example, there's an expert on the other side who is paid hundreds of thousands of year by an insurance company or by, I'll call it the bad side. So whichever side you're on is the bad side. Is there a chart, a graphic bar chart you can use of their income with this witness at trial so that when he or she is being cross-examined about their income, the jury sees the bar chart and they're looking at this witness like they're just being paid to say this and they immediately get it without you having to do a bunch of other things. So those are some of the kinds of things that I like to think about along with sort of graphically juxtaposing images. Is there a way to juxtapose differences that highlight what a person has gone through or highlight something significant about the case. For example, the image of, let's say it's a young child who used to play baseball, who has been severely injured to the wrong of somebody else. So you might present to the jury a picture of the child on the baseball field holding his bat, and then just show just a picture of the bat because the boy can no longer use it or whatever it might be. And so the juxtaposition between the image of the child being active and on the field and playing with just a bat in a corner or whatever it is, 
conveys a meaning that the person takes in and on their own sort of processes as having significance. And I've used that before in like a premises case where a customer entrance might have all kinds of broken up concrete and uneven services versus the corporate entrance for this chain that is beautifully designed and layout and there are, there are no tripping hazards. And so just juxtaposing those two images might be able to convey a lot about your case to a jury you know, in, a, in an instant. So those are some of the kinds of things that uh, I think about in terms of preparation. We spoke about this um, earlier and you had this fantastic timeline um, where you had presented um, this woman's history. She had really bad driving history and a number of collisions. And you had basically shown each year she's had about two or three collisions one year she's got a couple of parking tickets and then another collision and then in the third year collision collision and then there's the accident with your client and what struck me because it was a really simple infograph that we had but you literally had sound effects going bang 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 oh what's that ticket okay bang bang bang. so you automatically thought she was a bad driver just looking at her history and I thought that that was so impactful instead of reading through everything that she's done, you got it immediately just by looking at that. So I just wanted to talk you through how you even thought of creating it in that way. And obviously it was your preparation and just looking at her timeline and of what had happened, but what, what was the thought process behind that? Because I thought it was incredibly devastating as a visual aid. I'm smiling and laughing because I don't think you have that image in front of you. I think I showed it to you, I guess it was yesterday or when, I don't remember when it was. That's right. And you still remember it. <laughs> and that number one is important because that proves my point is that image sticks in your mind. And I didn't have to persuade you of anything. You convinced yourself of whatever it is. The other thing that I, I was smiling about is you were describing hearing sounds in your mind when the image has no sounds. I mean, it's an image. And I think that's a powerful example of how these images can take on meanings. And, and I'm looking, because I've got the image up and we'll share it with your audience. Uh, I'm looking at it and there is, I see that there's sort of these star-like kinds of things next to a car that's slightly tipped. And in your mind, you're hearing the impact or the sound or the crash of that, even though there's nothing there in this image that says that. And I find that fascinating as you're describing it, that you know, that this image took on even a deeper meaning to you. You're actually not only envisioning just a bad driving record, but you're also thinking about the collisions themselves. And because of the icon of the, I'll call it like a star-like effect next to the car, you're actually hearing and imagining what the crash would be like. And that, that's fascinating to me. It's just sort of, anyway, so I'll talk about the process itself. But to me, that demonstrates the, the power of, choosing the right kinds of images. So typically, if there's some kind of information I want to convey, and a lot of times we as lawyers are trying to convey information that on the one hand can be laid out on a timeline. It typically, the, what happens to our client is something that is over time, whatever, in almost every case, is something that happens over time. If it's a contract case, there's an initial offer, then there's acceptance consideration, and the contract comes into being, whatever it might be. Car wreck case, there may be the pre-existing whatever it might be, then the collision causes something, and then there's lingering problems. It could be something in a medical malpractice case where a patient's temperature is a certain 
series of numbers, and then at one particular point it spikes, and that is significant. So again, going back to whether it's William Playfair or whoever it might be, if I simply put up a series of numbers to you as the audience member, that may not have significance. But if I could turn that into a graphic image that makes sense to you, then it can take on the meaning that you want it to to help persuade. So with this particular person's driving history, the issue in the case related to this concept called negligent entrustment. In the United States, you can be liable or responsible for your own conduct in giving the keys to a dangerous instrumentality to somebody you know or should know will not treat it right, is, uh, will, will drive it inappropriately, will treat it irresponsibly. You know, giving a loaded gun to a child, giving a keys to a car to a drunk person, whatever it might be, that concept is negligent entrustment. So I wanted to try to figure out a way to convey that when this particular person gave the keys to the car to her daughter, that what information did she have at the time before she hands the keys and then the collision happens with my client. So I had her driving history. And again, that's sort of just going to be a list. It's going to be a date, an event, a date, an event, convictions, and so on. You can put that page up to a jury who may or may not get the information you want out of it because you may be conveying extraneous information. When you put up that chart, it's got the ticket number, maybe the date of the ticket versus the date of the conviction, maybe the officer's name and a whole bunch of other stuff. You as the lawyer presenting that information don't know what the person's going to be paying attention to, and they may miss what you are trying to convey to them. So instead, can you translate these numbers from a number chart or the equivalent of an Excel spreadsheet into an image that conveys meaning? And so I went through a series of iterations where I basically along a timeline from left to right wrote down the dates of the various collisions. And then I thought to myself, well, she's been in a collision, a collision, had a couple speeding tickets, another collision, and a reckless driving. And I sort of had that along a timeline. But when I put that into the equivalent of a PowerPoint or a keynote slide, in order to convey all the information horizontally, the images and the dates got too small. And so I was concerned that the jury wouldn't be able to see what was going on and when the dates were. So then I segmented it. I broke it in two years. I just had 2013 as one horizontal bar, I'll call it, and then two icons of a, the equivalent of a car crash. It's a car slightly on its side with like the star coming off it. And then I just put the dates underneath each for 2013. And then 2014 was another bar going horizontally across where it has two icons of a speedometer with the needle way over to the right. And then it's got a June 1st and September 6th. And then there's another collision image to the right of that on September 11th. And then below that is another bar that shows on July 5th, it's a car sort of on its side as an icon and because she was guilty of a reckless driving. And then October 30th was the date she collided with my client. So I went through the process of, of sort of describing it for you. I started off with a timeline and I thought to myself, how is the jury going to take in that information? And I'm running the risk that it's too small and they're not going to get it. And I played around with it. 
and drew it out and finally used a computer program to create this, that's how I sort of, e that evolved. What I'm looking for is there's a book called The Back of the Napkin by Dan Rome, R-O-A-M, who talks about how to solve problems drawing things with pictures. And I encourage lawyers who don't typically, probably don't draw things out, they typically think of typing up everything, to always have a, I think you made a comment that I had a drawing pad next to me with a pen. I oftentimes will think to myself, how can I draw out whatever it is I'm trying to convey? And it may not be the final picture, but it starts me on the path of trying to figure out how to convey that image to the audience. That was a long answer to, I think, your question. But that's how I went through the process. And, and the other thing that I'm doing, which is, to me, is just as important, which I don't even know if you've thought about, BB, is this. Right now, you and I sort of see each other through Zoom. And I'm trying to take into account that somebody may be driving around or sitting on a train somewhere in this planet listening to this podcast, and they have no visual in front of them. So how can I convey what I am seeing in words so that the picture is being built in their mind? And that's what I was trying to do as I was describing the image to you. It wasn't because I knew you had already seen it and you got it. I was trying to think about the audience and what picture can I develop in their mind about what I'm trying to convey? So I think we as lawyers always have to try to use not just images, but words to also build pictures in our audience's mind and remember what it's like for them and how they're taking in the information, what circumstance they may be when they are hearing what we are describing. So that sort of actually led into a whole other example and sort of thought process that you as the, you know, it all goes back to being a magician. What is the audience getting out of this? What is their perspective? You know, as in terms of neuroscience, how am I breaking into itty bitty pieces? I'm trying to describe what I'm seeing in words. That goes back to Posner and Dodd's book on cross-examination. When you introduce one fact at a time, you're trying to build a picture that develops in the mind of the audience so that they get the picture of what you are describing. The witness is simply agreeing with that. And once that picture has developed, they can't get rid of that picture. And now any attempt by the other side to try to destroy that picture will not work. So when you're preparing these images, and I said that the one with the collisions, I thought it was just devastating. How long does it take? Because in the perfect world, I'd love for it to take 10 minutes that I draw it on the back of a napkin, like Dan Rome says, but I know that isn't true. Like, How long do you spend on creating slides or images so that you've got it right for the jury? I've made up a rule, which I don't know if it's right or not, but this is what I tell people to assume in terms of making sure they set aside enough time in order to do this task. I tell everybody to assume it takes you an hour to design each slide and assume each slide you present will take less than a minute. So imagine if you're gonna do an opening statement before a judge or jury that might be 50 or 60 slides, you better assume you're gonna spend 50 to 60 hours designing that. Now that may be too much in a quote simple case, but to me that's a go by in terms of the time that you are going to be spending to design these things, which also is important to understand and recognize, this is not something you are doing the night before a jury trial or trial. <laughs> this is something that you have to have been developing over time, even in terms of a rough outline, just start the process of it so that 
as the facts develop in the case, you can start dropping these images into your slideshow so that you're not doing it or trying to do it the night before or even the week before. So that's sort of my weird go by in terms of a time. And again, there's another book that I, I like called Infographic Designers Sketchbooks that to me, it was neat to see. And whenever you can see part of an infographic designer and you can see them go from the hand drawing, I'll call it, to these sort of vector images, to see that process, you realize that when they put it down the first time, it is not the final product. And I think sometimes we as lawyers get paralyzed to not want to sit down and start typing our brief, not writing out our complaint, whatever it is, because we think we have to get it right the first time we type the words in, which never happens. I think you have to plan on this process of getting the information down, getting it out of your mind onto the piece of paper, and recognize that it will not be right the first time. But who cares? Just recognize that. And your job as a lawyer, as an advocate, is to go through and sharpen the pencil, get rid of unnecessary words, break it into bite-sized chunks, make it easier for the audience to get. And that process takes time. And it's, I can think back again to Steve Jobs. And my recollection is I've got the book behind me uh, written by um, Walter Isaacson. My recollection is when he was writing that biography, I think, and I can't remember if I read it in that book or some other story I've read about Steve Jobs, who used to talk about the idea, his father, he, he was adopted. And so his adopted father, I think was a carpenter or something. And he conveyed to Steve Jobs that what the world sees from your project is just as important as what they don't see. And that you have to take the time and care of spending all that time and effort on what nobody will ever see uh, when you are building your project. And so inside the Macintosh, people don't know this, but inside the Macintosh, if you take it apart, or is everybody's signature who was on the team who designed it, or who was involved in that process. And nobody would ever know that. But that to me is just a cool example of a, a sort of a guiding principle that I have in mind is it is not my goal or responsibility or job to tell or convey to the audience how much time I have spent doing this. They should just get it. And if they just get it, it doesn't matter how much time I spent because it's been worth it. You are very, very up to speed when it comes to technology, but not a lot of people are. And in the conversation that we had before we started recording this podcast, you were showing me quite simple things and I was actually quite wild. <laughs> and um, I was just wondering if you could give us a summary of the different sorts of technology and apps that you use. I use Keynote. That's Apple's version of PowerPoint. Now, PowerPoint is made to work on PCs and the Mac. And actually, PowerPoint was designed for the Mac first, uh, and then it, was, it came over to the PC. Microsoft made it for the Mac first. Um, and Steve Jobs wanted his own version of something to present his speeches to, so Keynote was designed. But I find personally that Keynote is a more elegant program to present information. So I use Keynote in terms of it is a tool that I'm using to convey information to an audience. And I also use Keynote to do things like design graphic blowups. So 
I use Keynote and what I'll call the four by three slide size because it's like 16 by nine and four by three. I always suggest to lawyers that they select the four by three dimensions because when you go to present, you don't know the way in which the projector or screen that you will be using in court, what its dimensions might be. So if you go by four by three, you're always gonna be right because it'll expand to fit. But if you do 16 by nine, and you go to a smaller screen, it'll look funny. So I use Keynote itself, not only to present information, but to design blowups. So using this sort of four by three dimension, I may take a picture of part of a document and drop it into the slide, and then may put some words across it. So use my point image emphasis. And then I can print that slide as a PDF and send it off to the printer who they can then put it on a 30 by 40 blow up and have it for me. So I use the keynote itself to help me design some slides or images that I might use at trial. Another thing that I use is, uh, there are a couple of other programs that I like. One is a program called MindNode. And that program allows you to do or create what's called mind maps. And for people not familiar with mind map, it's a technique used to outline ideas. And the cool thing to me about a mind map is it allows you to, lawyers tend to think if you just pull out a legal pad or something and you start writing out cross-examination, whatever you write it at the top and then you work your way down, that tends to be the order in which you're going to ask the questions, which may not be the best order. But the mechanics of switching that order around once you've committed it to this linear piece of paper becomes very difficult for you. If you start drawing an arrow and start putting ones or twos and threes in different places, and then you try to figure that out later on, you start stumbling when it's time to actually do it because it's a cluster. So one of the cool things about mind maps is it allows you to create almost like in a radial sort of fashion, you have a center node, and then off of it, you have arms. And it allows you to quickly organize your thoughts in a way and sort of see them all at once from a, again, going back to the 20, 30,000 foot view of things, as opposed to a, a linear way of things. And then you can move them around very easily. And if you have a thought that you type on a particular arm or branch, which gives you an idea to expand on an a branch that you've already done, it's very easy just to add it to the a branch that might be above it without having to flip back through the various pages and try to find out, figure out where you were. So this concept of mind mapping and using a program like MindNode, I think it's worth lawyers exploring and studying. I will oftentimes use a mind map for cross-examination. I've used them for appellate argument where I can fit my entire argument into a mind map such that when I go to make my argument, it's on, and I might put it on 11 by 17 piece of paper, that I don't need to have stacks of other notebooks or papers near, near me because I've outlined all my thoughts into this mind map. And a lot of times with mind maps, one of the big things to do is to use images instead of just words. I mean, you can do a combination. So the idea is that when you see an image, like if you see the big W, like the Microsoft Word icon, and I drop that into a mind map, I will know I'm talking about the Microsoft Word application without having to write out Microsoft Word. So to me, this sort of mind map is a uh, cool tool for lawyers to use. Another kind of app is a timeline kind of application. Uh, to me, there, there are multiple ways to do this. 
there's a program called AEON, I think it's called AEON Timeline. And that application as both PCs and Macs is used by storytellers as well as lawyers. And it can get very detailed. I mean, it can get down into the second. You can create an event, especially if you're doing a chart, let's say, you know, in a medical malpractice case where each second or each minute may matter, you can actually create a timeline in which all those various um, points are captured. And there's another program called Timeline 3D that's for the Mac. It's a different kind of timeline application where you can actually present the information in, well, it's a 3D form. You, you create the timeline and then it actually will physically, well, it's not physically, visually rotate at an angle. And then you're only showing one slice of the timeline at a time. To me, an important aspect about a timeline is making a distinction and consciously deciding, are you using the timeline as the lawyer to help you organize the information and ideas so that you're better able to present it? Or are you going to be using the timeline to present the information to the judge, jury, or decision maker? Because you may have two different timelines depending on who your audience is. If it's for you to just keep up with your case, then you may have a bunch of details that you would never and should never present to the jury or judge versus a much more streamlined timeline that you might use for the judge or jury or decision maker. So that's sort of a timeline application. Uh, another program I use, that probably a lot of people use is Microsoft Word. And I encourage you to get familiar with Word and some of its abilities. I was not a big fan, probably still not, but I used to be a big fan of Word Perfect for the Mac. And that was a great program. And at some point it sort of died. And then I was stuck with Microsoft Word. And I never liked Word because I always felt like it was trying to force me to do things the way it wanted me to do them. And so it's taken me many years to try to get used to, you feel like that too? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I always feel like Word is trying to make me do something its way. And so I've tried to take some time to learn about Microsoft Word and to learn some of the valuable tools it actually does have available to it. Like you can generate a table of contents after you create a series of headers. Um, and so the practice in developing the ease of getting comfortable with some of the tools available in Microsoft Word can allow you to create things much more quickly and better, but it's just taking the time to get used to its heavy handedness. Another thing that I think lawyers ought to think about is how to use the cloud. You know, the cloud is basically a, it's a hard drive in the sky and there's different services that provide cloud services. Dropbox, iCloud for the Mac. I think the, um, I can't remember what one's called for the, for the PC it's called. There's OneDrive as well. One, OneDrive, that's OneDrive, right. OneDrive, yes. right. And there's all kinds of these boxes and all these different things. My own personal view is number one, remember it's the cloud. Where is that being stored? So before you decide to put everything up in the cloud, think about where is it and what personal confidential information about your client do you want to put out there that may or may not be encrypted. So I try to think about that whenever I'm putting something in the cloud. I encrypt everything in my office, all my hard drives, all my computers are encrypted, my backup drives are encrypted so that theoretically somebody, even if they come across it or steal it, they can't get into it without a password. It would take, and it's encrypted. 
that to me as a lawyer is a big deal to make sure you understand encryption technology, that you're using encryption technology and that you're backing things up. So jumping to the cloud for a second and what it can provide as a benefit to a lawyer. One of the cool concepts is that the cloud allows you to do a couple of neat things. One is collaboration. So you can work with another lawyer, paralegal or client via the cloud. So you can create a word document, mind map, whatever it might be, store it in the cloud and then send a link to that to someone else. So that, and you can give them what's called permissions. Can the person who you send the link to view it or are they gonna also have the power to edit it so they can view and edit it? So whenever you're collaborating with somebody, think about what power you're going to give them. Do you want them just to be able to look at something or do you want them to be able to edit something? So one of the powerful things that you can do with collaboration is imagine creating a Word document, which is going to be some kind of memo you're gonna be filing with the court. And imagine, well, especially now in these COVID times, but imagine you're working with co-counsel who may not be in your same firm, who may be in a different part of the country. You can put the document in the cloud, send a link to another lawyer who in real time can be modifying that document. So I've had co-counsel with me, we might be working on an appellate brief or a memo, whatever it might be that we need to get filed with the court. And literally in real time, I can be working on one part of it and she can be working on another part so that we're creating one and modifying and editing one document. She may see a word I've used and not like it and she can change it right away. And so you're not ending up with this email chain that goes across time. And especially if you start getting three people involved, you end up with somebody who's modified a prior version of something when you're already on the next version and it becomes a real cluster to try to organize this information. So using this collaboration tool is a nice way to help you focus on that one document at a time and make sure everybody's up to date with where things currently are. The other thing it allows you to do is using the cloud is this mind. I made a mind map as sort of part of what I was going to talk about today on my computer this morning. Then I went for a walk. On my iPhone, I pulled up the mind map app. And while I was walking, I thought of things I wanted to add and change. So I could, whether you have an iPad or iPhone, whatever it might be, you can actually log in, depending on the app's ability, and modify things on the fly. So if you're sitting on a train in London and you have an idea in, an, in your notes, you can put in your Apple notes, you can put down an idea. So when you get into the office on your Mac, that notes app will have that current thought and you can add to it and then assign it to a client file, whatever it might be once you're in your office. So I think lawyers should start trying to recognize this neat tool that allows them to always have access to information, whether it's to help themselves capture an idea and do something with it later on or share an idea with another lawyer in real time. That's definitely a helpful tool. And um, I was the, recipient of the mind map after you had changed it while on the on the go and you never know it just looks so professional so um thank you for that and there was something you showed me yesterday is it called ipivo i've never heard of it before but it was fantastic right the ipivo is a document presenter and the united states it costs about 299 dollars if you can get one right now because what it is it's a tool 
there are different, I'll call it varieties of them. And this particular one happens to have a battery here and it's a Wi-Fi, and it's, you can plug in cables to connect it to your computer. And it's got a camera and a microphone. It's got a round base and an arm and a, it's like an elbow. And you can flex the arm, which has a camera at the end, which you can then rotate. And you can put that on a table and put documents underneath it. And you can plug that into a computer or in a Zoom call or whatever it might be and use this device to present a particular document in real time to a judge, jury, co-counsel, client, whatever it might be. There have been lawyers in the United States who have been using this IPVO to present documents via a Zoom deposition so that the lawyer can show a witness who may be a mile down the street or across the country a document in real time and write on it so when the witness says something, they can say, oh, let's say here's a picture of the scene. You described that you were on the corner of you know, King and Main Street, yes. I'm pointing to it with my finger. Is that where it is? Yes. All right, I'm going to now mark that with a red circle. Have I accurately marked where you were? Yes. Now we're going to mark this as an exhibit. And the witness can see in real time that document. And this same device can be used in trial so that it's just another method of presenting information in what I'll call real time as opposed to a static document, which might be something on a keynote slide or a blow up. In real time, you can highlight something and the jury can see that happening. If a witness says something about a particular document, you can write down the word or two that they've used to describe it and maybe put the witness's name down so that later on during closing, you can hold up and show that document to the jury and say, remember when Dr. Smith was on the stand, he said this was the bullet document or whatever it might be. And you remember when we talked about that and here's what the significance is of that document. I'm sure there are other document presenters out there. Uh, this is just sort of a new higher tech version of what has in the past been called either an Elmo or door presenter. And I think as a lawyer, you need to get familiar with the various tools that may be available to present information other than just your voice. I mean, this whole sort of discussion has been, a lot of it has been about thinking about not just standing up and talking to the judge or jury or whoever the decision maker is, but the methods that you might go about, what are the tools available to you to present this information? There are different ways to present visual information. Is it through a slide? Is it through an IPVO? Is it going to be the physical blow up? Is it just the document? And all these are the kinds of things I think you have to think about. So anyway, that's the IPVO. If you can get one, great. I think there's probably like a black market for them. I mean, you might be looking at eight plus weeks for delivery of one, but I think they're very nice tools to use. So Justin, what three practical tips do you have for our listeners today? What I hope people are getting out of this that I may not have said out loud is that it takes a lot of practice to be comfortable. And I think you as a lawyer have to devote the time and effort it takes to make something look easy. It can take a lot of time. It can take a lot of effort to stand up and make something look very simple. I encourage anyone or everyone to start practicing these skills. I tell lawyers who want, lawyers say to me all the time, well, how do you get to be so good at presenting PowerPoint or keynote? I tell them, you practice. <laughs> you practice doing it in your office. You have the projector, 
or you have the extra screen and you physically press the button to make the slides advance, you stand up and you speak and you say the words as if you were in front of the jury or judge and you go through that mechanical process so that it becomes natural to you and you start getting into the sort of rhythm of feeling like what feels right. Another thing when you're doing that, when you're practicing doing these slide presentations, you will recognize one or two slides don't feel right when you're presenting the information. You recognize they should either be moved or you don't need them. And that recognition only happens through you're actually standing up and practicing and doing that. So I encourage you to start using these tools. Do not wait the, to the night before a trial. <laughs> don't wait to the week before a trial. Just start practicing on a routine basis. If you are in, how do you, what are other ways to practice? It may be that you have an opportunity to go speak before a group or a school to speak to kids about some aspect of law or whatever it might be. Take your presenter stuff with you and practice standing up in front of an audience and doing these things. It doesn't have to be a judge or jury. Get comfortable standing up in front of an audience without notes and presenting the information. So it's practice, practice, practice. That's, that's, I think that's an important concept. It's not just reading this information and it's not just thinking to yourself, oh, I think I can apply it. It's actually taking the very next and the hardest step, which is to start actually trying to apply it. And you will not get it right the first time, whatever. One of the things I also tell lawyers to practice is, and I kid you not, I tell them this, is when they are presenting something in the office, have somebody, when they do not know it's going to happen, if they're presenting to some people in the office, unplug the projector in the middle of whatever it is they're saying. And be ready to pick up a blow up and just keep going as if nothing has happened. I mean, you have to practice that something is going to fail. How you handle that failure is what the audience, judge, or jury picks up on. They don't know something has failed unless you react like it has. If the screen suddenly goes blank and you go and pick up a blow up and start talking about that, the jury's going to have no idea that something bad happened. They thought you were done with whatever it was and now you're going to use the blow up. So bring with you things that don't require batteries and assume it's going to fail, but think to yourself ahead of time, if and when this fails, what am I going to be doing? That's sort of another thing that leads back to the magician talk that we talked about at the very beginning is have a plan B, have an out. Uh, magicians think to themselves, if something goes wrong, what's my out? How am I getting out of this? So if you're going to be doing a particular card effect and something goes wrong, the audience doesn't know it's gone wrong until you react like, oh, hold on a second, let's start over. If you just keep going forward and in your mind say, wait a second, I can just do this other trick where I am, the audience doesn't know you've switched whatever it is in midstream. They just know you've moved forward. And so that's another thing I think lawyers can learn from a magician is have a plan B, have an out, and always be prepared to yourself. If something doesn't work, what am I going to do? And I think that will make you a better advocate, make you better prepared, and help you represent your client. Justin, where can our listeners connect with you online? Uh, Law Office has a webpage, con, K-A-H-N, lawfirm.com, not K-H-A-N, but K-A-H-N, lawfirm.com. I have a blog, which I haven't kept up as often as I used to, which is called ipadnotebook.com, where I used to blog about, and I still do from time to time, about technology and things dealing with 
iOS devices. I'm, I'm sure I'm on LinkedIn and some other social media. Don't be offended if I don't immediately <laughs> click you as a friend or whatever, because if I don't know you, I tend not to. I'm not a big, oh, I'll click on everybody. So I think I'm on LinkedIn, but you can go to my webpage or our law firm's webpage, and I'm here in Charleston, South Carolina. And my email is the letter J, the letter S is in Sam, con, K-A-H-N, at conlawfirm.com. I'm generally available to answer questions. To me, it's fun when somebody has a question about some aspect to do with technology, presenting, whatever it might be. Usually, they're asking me something that I have not even thought about. So for me, it's sort of fun to have them ask the question and for me to think about, well, what would I do? Uh, sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it's somebody who's just got a practical question. You know, what book do I suggest? Uh, do I have any techniques or ideas in mind? And I'm glad to answer those uh, to the extent I can point you in the right direction. So Justin, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been an educational and incredibly interesting experience for me as well as the listeners. So really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you. It's been brilliant. Thank you for listening to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and visit us at theadvocacypodcast.com for reading lists and other resources. Until next time.